Network. Hi, this is Stephen Turek from the Freebooters Network. Today we bring you another episode of Ego, the 80s geek out. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of Ego, the 80s Geek Out podcast. My name is Ian Clark and I'm joined, as always, by the Oingo to my Boingo, Mr. A. Bradford Anderson. Brad, how are you? Good morning, sir. I am well. Tired, but good. Yeah, yeah. Had an interesting night last night. Anything you want to share? Are you, are you... Probably not over the air <laughs> at this point. But we'll just say, for the, the sake of uh, uh, our, our listeners, um, we'll leave it right there. Right. It was a fun Saturday night. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we are recording this, it is the end of April, and we are, of course, still in the COVID-19 pandemic. So, uh, I mean, things uh, – we'll, we'll just kind of check in real quick with how things are going. Not a lot has changed for me over the last month or so since we've been in lockdown as far as – I mean, obviously things have changed, but – Overall, during the pandemic, not much has changed for me. I'm still going into the office uh, where I work at the state. There are very few of us in there. There's usually six, seven, eight, maybe ten at the most. It's all the same people pretty much all the time. So I I feel pretty safe. It's kind of like I go from one bubble to another, like I go to my work bubble, and then I come home to my home bubble. And if I do have to go to the grocery store, I've been wearing a mask everywhere. And for the most part, everybody is is wearing masks and all the, you know, all the, the people at the grocery stores and things like that that work there are yeah. uh, are doing so as well. So that's good to see. So um, I just hope people can be patient because if we can really be patient with this and let it get past the, to you know, the worst of it to back to dying down, then we can actually get back to doing normal things. You know, things are going to be altered, I think, forever. Possibly. <laughs> But um, but I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm still getting a ton of hobby stuff done, playing video games, uh, watching TV, all that type of stuff. So what's uh, what's been going on with you? Um, I've finally come to terms with and, and now feel fairly adjusted with working from home. It's not optimal. I mean, my bed is my couch. My couch is my workspace, which is absolutely fine. Um, it, those first couple of weeks definitely were, were awkward. You know, I was completely out of sync with my normal routine, you know, getting up later, staying up later. That was an issue. It finally normalized a little bit in that sense. I thought, kind of found my rhythm, I think, is the best. I do What I do enjoy, however, you know, working from home, and obviously it's more expanded at home, is listening to my music collection all day during the, during the workday, sitting on my couch versus, you know, listening to stuff on YouTube when you're at work. So <clears throat> everything out here is, is it's almost – I kind of very descriptive the way you've mentioned it, you know, stores now have like the USPS, CVS, and a bunch of other retailers, food retailers have like the spit guards up um, blocking it. You know, there's sometimes tape or markers on the floor to stand, you know, at least six feet away. Um, So yes, it sounds like it's, it's fairly homogenous across the country with what corporations are doing with the public interaction. You know, I've been wearing a mask, when I go, I'm, I'm sensitive to the fact that I get it. Um, I don't want to wear a mask forever. I don't want to become a society that is just kind of living behind masks as a result of this. But, you know, when I go into stores and whatnot, I have a mask on me just in case, depending on how long I'm going to be in there. I take a kind of a quick 
lay of the landscape to see you do it. Does everyone have a mask on? If they don't, you know, what, how am I going to react to it? So we'll do it. We'll do it for the foreseeable future until things somewhat normalize. But again, the this new normal is going to be way different from what we were, you know, anticipated prior to this. Yeah, and I, I think that one thing that's going to come out of this, not immediately because it can't change over immediately, and there are some places where it'll never fully change over, but I, I, this is a huge speed forward, I think, towards a cashless society when, you know, people handling money and all that type of thing. And I know there are third world yep. countries and other places where electronic money transfer is just never going to be a thing. Right. But I, I think for the most part in the larger developed nations, I, I think this is going to speed us toward that. And I kind of wonder about, too, like social pleasantries, you know, the handshaking thing. I mean, that's clearly they were warning against that on the front end, and they're still very heavy on making sure you wash your hands based on things you touch. I mean, you know, I'm, I'll be honest. In the past, I've shaken people's office hands, you know, well-dressed people, and their hands feels like they just dipped it in like a, a water bath. I mean, <laughs> kind of gross, but at the same yeah. point, it kind of makes me think like, you know, I'm probably not going to, you know, elbow or fist bump somebody, but maybe – uh, a nod of the head or a nice to meet you as opposed to an actual handshake might replace that. I think it, in light of <clears throat> if that happens to be one of the core transfer ways it's done through handshakes or that type of contact, then you'd want to think maybe we have to kind of revise, which will be strange because, you know, we're such a embracing society for the most part. We're shaking hands and hugs, those types of things. But, you know, I'm just trying to imagine what going out to a bar is going to be like, you know, or a restaurant, you know, because I know there are certain restrictions that some places have. <clears throat> now, when you're in line waiting to do takeout, you know, six feet apart, masks, but actually, are they going to be limiting the amount of patrons inside a restaurant is something to consider, and how is that going to work, and, you know, do you have to have at your table, or is everyone going to be six feet spaced? It's it's a very bizarre world, and I don't know if things will migrate naturally backwards, but, you know, to what we remember as being normal, or is it going to continue on with these somewhat hyper-strong rules in place to kind of keep people in check and aware of their surroundings more so than they would have been before. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see what comes of it. And uh, I know a lot of people are joking about the haircut thing and everything. And I'm at the point where it's going to be a Brad has long hair. You guys can't see him, but he does have long hair. I don't know if I'm going to end up looking like that. But the problem is Brad pulls off the long hair. I'm losing mine in the back. I'm going to look like an aging rock star who just won't let it go. Is what's going to happen to me. So I'm not looking forward to that. And my wife has said unequivocally she will not attempt to cut my hair. So I don't I don't know what's going to happen. But <laughs> so we'll see where that goes. But um, one thing I did want to ask you about um, is uh, and and not really not necessarily pandemic related, but I think that right. you obviously had time to begin to watch a show that I had been begging you to watch for oh. some time. And now you have, and that is what we do in the shadows. So what are your thoughts on that? I cannot thank you because I know you initially recommended it to me, you know, I think at the front end of when we started doing the series and it's been in my queue of things to watch. And more recently I've had other people come out of the woodwork, just random friends saying, have you checked this out? And then I'm like looking at all these very intelligent, very creative, very knowledgeable people recommending something to me that I have just keep putting off and off. And I finally committed. I committed to the season one. I committed to the movie. Uh, and now I'm committed to season two. It's absolutely f a fantastic series. And I and I feel bad for being 
so late to the party on this, knowing that I trust everyone and value your opinion as well as a few other people's opinions. My friend Jamie out here recommended as well, and she uh, was like, "You, why are you waiting on this? This is the perfect time, and obviously it was the perfect time. Pandemic time is the greatest <laughs> time to catch up on things that good friends recommend to you that you've not been blowing off but just kind of been kind of circling uh, before committing. But, yeah, what a what a great series, and I hope it continues for a long time. Yeah, me too. I've enjoyed uh, season two so far as well, and uh, if I, and I recommend it to a lot of people. But the thing I always do say is it's a very adult show. It's it's not one to watch with the kids, even even right. teenage kids. I'm yes. I mean, depends on your comfort level. I right. just because of the content. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't be comfortable watching it with my kids. Like my kids can. I think it's, you know, especially my older son, it's totally fine for him to watch it, but not something I want to watch with him. It's it would right, be a, bit, right. a bit awkward, but it's a, it's a very smartly written show. It takes the vampire tropes and does yeah. some really fun things with them, and I just really, really enjoy it. It's a beautiful show, absolutely. And Matt Berry, I mean, that, that goes without saying. I, I've been following him since the UK IT crowd and then the Toast of London, and he's done a host of other little comedic things that – pop up on YouTube every now and then. And he's just, uh, his brand of humor, his thespianism is very prominent in every role he plays. And I think that's kind of his shtick and it, and it works for anything that he translates himself into for uh, new roles. Yeah. He's it, the whole cast is phenomenal. They've yeah. done a great job. And even the people that they bring in the, the guest stars and everything, it's, it's been, it's been really fun. So yeah, yeah highly recommend what we do in the shadows. All right, well, let's get into the main thrust of what we're going to do here today. We thought, and we, we mentioned it back when we first touched on music in the 80s, that the thing to do at some point would be to go year by year, beginning with 1980, and taking a look at the releases in music. Brad and I, huge mu- music guys. You you heard Brad mention how he listens to music all day at work. I do the same thing. I have uh, I have Pandora going on my phone at work, either with headphones or, for, or now with those not many people around i can just kind of play it at a low volume and and enjoy it so brad does dj work we're we're both huge music guys we have a lot of similar interests however we also have a lot of really different interests when it comes to music so this will be kind of neat because i asked brad i said let's do like the top five albums we'll do some um uh some honorable mentions then we'll go through just kind of everything of note that came out and we'll just kind of talk about stuff like that so you can just kind of keep it free form yeah. But we do have our top five lists, and uh, so I think we'll start with that, just to kind of get those out of the way. And it, it, this will be interesting because, again, we do have some some similarities, as you guys heard back when we first broke down 80s music. There's some stuff that we both really love, but Brad has more of like a new wave and techno background, whereas I have more of a heavy metal. Uh, you know, I, I have those proclivities in my musical uh, collection, so this should be fun. So... Uh, did you did you rank yours? Do you have them actually one through well, five? Well, I mean, I ranked them one through five based on what my access to the albums were at the time and what knowledge I had of the bands at the time, which it's funny because, you know, um, at in 1980, I was eight at the time. And my outreach, be, because of things like, you know, public or, or commercial radio, occasionally I had a, a stereo in my room. I had a little Sony Walkman, so I had access to listening to music and I would occasionally recognize or hear something on the radio which I thought was fantastic you know we had a, a pretty good radio station um in central Maine that I listened to growing up part of the reason I think it was because Dr. Demento was broadcast on Sunday night 
Yes, w, WTOS, Top WTOS of Sugarloaf. was one. And then yes. I also listened to um, WMHB, which was uh, Colby's radio station. Oh, okay. And that obviously kind of stayed with me through the 90s, listening as, as I really got further into kind of the indie alternative thing that was going on in the UK. And here you would hear things, you know, coming on that. But those two, because we were, we kind of were lucky to have two, a good, you know, Ivy league radio station, you know, just, you know, probably was it 12, 13 miles from us in Waterville. And then we had W2S, which is literally in my backyard. That's about a mile from my actual childhood home. Those were kind of like the, I would say the, the resources that I had access to, you know, I wasn't because MTV hadn't started yet. And I don't think there was any late night video shows because that wasn't really popular. But I relied heavily on my older cousins, being I'm, I'm kind of the baby of the family at 47 now. That, that tells you <laughs> something. But I had cousins, my the, the, my Corbett family in Long Island, um, in uh, Floral Park, and then my the Peterson family. So both sides of my family had older go- older male cousins in it, and they were listening to a lot of cool things. One like the Petersons, I felt were listening to more of the alternative stuff. Alternative being like what I would say Thompson Twins esque, and then the Corbett's were listening to kind of the more hard rock stuff like Van Halen, and obviously um, my cousin uh, Spencer was huge into Maiden and Van Halen, so he definitely I had exposure early on. Didn't quite necessarily know what everything was, um, but was always fascinated to look in you know their rooms and see posters of artists and bands I didn't know anything about. So yeah, I, I would say my list the five. I definitely had the, the the top three that I had. I definitely had exposure to directly. Either listening to a cousin playing it on vinyl, um, but the final two um, I was aware of, but not really into. And I've gone through a couple phases with my number five band to where I am today. Gotcha. Mine's kind of a mix because there's definitely some stuff off of these albums in my top five <clears throat> that was getting airplay that I was listening to. But oddly enough, my number one. I was not familiar with, so I, I kind of went with a mix of things that I loved at the time and have grown even more fond of or gained a greater appreciation for, and then also stuff that I yeah. discovered later that happened to be out in that time. That, and, and this is what's funny. This is what I always think about with heavy metal, because I'm, I'm a big metal fan, especially of that era, and, and yeah. going back, Black Sabbath is my favorite group of all time, and uh, um, those, I think about like when we were in high school and middle school and stuff, and the kids you saw with the jean jackets with the patches. I was going to say the exact same thing. Yes, the Pink Floyd, the Zeppelin, and or the the you know the Black Sabbath jackets. And they, it's funny you say that. I was thought that that's why great minds think alike. I was thinking a lot of the guys who were in the shop classes at the time <laughs> that I was afraid of were wearing these jackets. Jeez, they got the yeah, huge back patch that you know, which yeah. was a mystery of how they attained it, but it was it was pretty cool. Like wow. And they were usually pretty badass guys and a little bit scary to, you know, walk in the the school hallways next to. So, yeah, it's it's funny because I I look back at that and some of them had like to me what was obscure names yeah. on, you know, the patches and stuff. But now yeah. I, you know, I know. But but, yeah, you'd see Iron Maiden and Dio and uh, yeah, and, yeah. Um, uh, of course, the the classics like Sabbath and Judas Priest and stuff yes. like that. But and I, you know, I just remember those and it's weird and i'm sure it's still clicky today but you know those were like the burnout kids you know what i mean and, yeah, and right, right they were they seemed they seemed a little a little rough around the edges and you you were right. a little, you kind of kept your distance i mean but, to, uh, to kind of equate it i mean it, it was kind of like part of the dazed and confused movie crowd but in the 80s yeah it's like you yeah. just you see them coming and you want to give them a wide wide space a little bit of birth there when you're passing them 
you know, I do recall a few of them hanging out at the Chamber of Commerce downtown in Skowhegan wearing those said jackets. So <laughs> we, our assessment, even from a young age, wasn't too far off. You know, kind of the burnout crowd probably were smoking weed well before everyone else was <laughs> and, right. you know, had, had street cred, but were fearful to walk by in the, in the school hallways. So, yeah. well, <laughs> and the funny thing is, like, like me, present day me just wants to go back and be like, you know talk to those dudes because i probably had more in common with them than i realized you know it's but it's one of those things where high school is so divisive and um yeah so but that is yeah that's kind of funny to look back on yeah absolutely (laughs) all right why don't we start with your number five on your list what do you what do you got number five i had and this is a band that i've gone through a couple phases with over time and it's is killing joke you know i didn't really know much about them back then you know i think my cousins may have had it. I mean, the, the Killing Joke self tape. They have two albums called Killing Joke. They have one from I think it's two, 2003, and then this one was, which is from obviously 1980. This was their debut album. You know, it's hailed in the community as nowadays as kind of the you know post new wave, not industrial because they migrated into industrial, but they were kind of punkish a little bit back then. So they were a band that I had minimal exposure to, but over the years, up until 2020, they have been one of the uh, biggest bands that I've, that I absolutely love. And they're one of the few bands that I've seen the most of in my life. And it's funny, I've seen them more here in California since moving here in 2012 than I have when I was in my entire life. The first time I actually saw them was 93 uh, in Boston. And, but for them, it's always been, you know, a progression of their music, which is fantastic. I mean, if you look at some of their, the songs off that album are just, are other classics that they play even in their lives that say Requiem, War Dance, um, uh, and are just some of them, and Bloodsport, obviously, The Weight and Complications. So it was an album that was just chock full of classic singles that they eventually went ahead and integrated into their sets over and over again and, and they're kind of like staples that people expect but you know that Killing Joke is just a phenomenal band who's gone through so many different you know I would say lineup incarnations you know especially on the drumming department and the bass department but they've also um evolved to being one of my most favorite because they're, they're like a I call them the fine wine of uh, of their industry because they keep getting better with each year and that's not really possible in most musical terms, but Killing Joke has definitely gotten amazing over the years, and I really look forward to, you know, their continued output. Nice. So this is a band that I, I knew the name. I don't think I was familiar with anything, and, and something that I asked Brad to do with this was uh, a little bit of homework. We gave each other each a few songs to check out, and one of the ones that Brad sent for me was War Dance by Killing Joke. So I did a little bit of research on it and was in, very interested to find that um, bands like uh, Metallica, Nirvana, List, Killing Joke as an influence on them. And Wardance, great track. I really like It's got an edge to it. It's it's yep. almost proto metal, a yep. little bit, almost a little prog, a little punk. It's got yep. it's it's got a ton of stuff to it. Now I really enjoyed it, and so it's definitely there. There's someone I'm gonna check uh, check out more. I'm gonna dive a little deeper because I thought that was a good track. So yeah, great, good good call on that one. Awesome. Um, all right, so my number five, I had a, I had a hard time with my my fifth spot. I had two that I went back and forth with, but ultimately I, ha- I had to go with the one that had just a few more songs that I like a ton, and it was really close, but taking my number five spot was Back in Black by ACDC. Yeah. 
This is, uh, it's an iconic record for a lot of reasons. It was the first one after Bon Scott's death. Uh, first one with Brian Johnson uh, on vocals. And I'm going to try and take you through some of the tracks because it's got a lot of their better known stuff. And it'll just be easier for me to type it in. But I will say the funny thing is, the best known song uh, on this, it would help if I could spell the word black, uh, <laughs> the best known song on this album is probably ACDC's best known song, period, and that's uh, You Shook Me All Night Long. Mm-hmm. That, that song, like everybody knows that song, right? I don't dislike the song. But if I never heard that song again, I would be okay with it because that song is so unbelievably overplayed. Oh yeah, it's been. It's. I mean, I as if I were were back in the day, I think that song was played at nearly every high school dance I went to at some point. That made it in there back in the day. So even after while we were in high school and whatnot, the the song was still in heavy DJ rotation on the independent level at school dances. So yeah, that one. Definitely uh, ranks there with being a, a solid track, but one that we could you know easily forget based on how much it's been played into our consciousness. Yeah, and isn't that funny to have a, a ACDC track that's actually danceable? But you're absolutely <laughs> right. I remember going to the school dances and they would play that. <laughs> but yeah, that's and it's not a bad song, but it's it's just overplayed. Like as I'm saying this right now, that song is playing on a classic rock station. As you are listening to this right now, that song is playing on a classic rock. I'm willing to bet my paycheck on that. <laughs> Absolutely. It is. It, it is. It just is. But uh, some of the other strong tracks on there, it opens with Hell's Bells, which is just got that ominous bell tolling and goes into a great riff. That's that's a song that really holds up. Uh, Shoot to Thrills on there. It's a good one. They used it in one of the uh, either the Iron Man or Avengers movies. I can't remember. Right. Um, what do you do for money, honey? Is a good one. Giving the dog a bone. Uh, Back in Black, obviously phenomenal song. Um, and but one of I think my favorite song on this album. This is a really strong album. Uh, ten tracks, all all really good. My favorite is the very last track on side two, "Rock and Roll Ain't Noise Pollution." Uh, that's that's I don't know for for whatever reason that's one of my favorite ACDC songs. Really enjoy that one. So um, a bit more mainstream than most of my other choices. But it's hard to deny how solid an album that is and how it stands up. And some people right. joke, I think ACDC themselves have joked that they've made the same record 20 times. But <laughs> but it works. It's a formula that works. And this was, they had a lot to prove with, you know, Bon Scott being gone. And, um, you know, so, uh, yeah, I just think, I think it's one that really, it, it stays, um, it stands the test of time. And right. you know, those tracks are, are really good. So, um, yeah, that was my that was my five. So what do you got in your number four slot? Number four spot, again, um, the second of the two albums that I didn't have a ton of access to um, was Devo. Um, I yeah. for choice was their third album. And I think exposure wise, either one of my buddies in Skowhegan's older brother might have had the vinyl. You know, I just remember looking at you know the the i think it was a, the vinyl cover because i wouldn't have necessarily heard much of that on any sort of radio station i might have heard whip it which was you know their heralded sure. single from that's their second single but um i it ha- my exposure to it would have had to have come from a friend's house and i was was intrigued by it because it was so 
unique sounding. It was, it was atypical to anything that I had heard to date from my K12, K, KTEL 12 inches that had like the greatest <laughs> hit albums on them that my folks picked up. Um, it was probably the most unique collection and unique sounding band because it, it was nothing that I w- w- was had any sort of um, exposure to at large. You know, the it was very very keyboardy, very robotic sounding, very you know very you know animatronic, just very wild in that regard. And and it, they, the band has obviously done really well over time. They're kind of heralded in some circles as kind of like the new wave indie breakers in the U.S. market. Mark Mothersbaugh has gone on to do label work and 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 and, and uh, soundtrack work. He, do, he does music on what we do in the shadows. I did not know that. Yeah, he does. Okay, so, well, everything is tied <laughs> together now. Synchronicity, baby. So, yeah, that they w- Devo would be one that I wouldn't say I've gone out and bought their albums over time, but if when you know in the past when I've worked in music stores and there was a – you know, either a promo of an album or something in the used bin, I would pull it out because it's just a, a unique sounding genre kind of trend setting band that I think inspired a lot of people, but was kind of, you know, ahead of their time in the way, the based on what, the, the way they put their music together. The, you know, the lyrics in some ways were not always, you know, thought provoking, but <laughs> the lyrics plus the music you just kind of wanted to almost like pogo to it, but as a robot pogo, not like a punk pogo <laughs> dance, but a robot. So they, they, you know, Freedom of Choice would is definitely my fourth um, independent album, kind of solidifying what you were saying earlier, how we, you and I have a lot of similar music tastes, but we also have a lot of uh, tastes that don't always cross paths. And, you know, I, as I was looking at the list of bands um, with releases from 1980, I was going through them, and as I was seeing ones that I was going to fall onto as my choices, I also was seeing ones that I knew you were probably going to pick, yeah. and that was kind of indicative of, you know, what your musical, what, the way you were leaning early on, kind of the way I was leaning, and this was back before I even knew what indie alternative was. These were, you know, you know, kind of, you know, indie bands, what we would consider early indie bands in this country were... Um, you know, ending up with a couple songs on the radio. And again, these are still preceding, you know, the MTV years, which I think was 81-ish. So, you know, we were a year out from anything actually appearing visually so we could associate, you know, guys wearing what looked like salad bowls on their heads and (laughs) weird jumpsuits and robotic movements and just a good album altogether. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're such an interesting band and Mother's Boss so interesting, you know, with his career and the, the yeah. different things he's done, I was taking a look at just some of the the filmography and, and the TV and all kinds of stuff that he's worked on, and it's it's crazy how prolific he's been and, and different type of stuff. It's funny because you know you look at what he what he's done, you know his name um, is well known, but again if you look at someone like another person from that era, Danny Elfman from Oingo Boingo, uh, very much migrated uh, into you know soundtrack production that sort of thing behind the scenes, so. You know, clearly these front men have done amazing things in their careers outside of just studio and album release production. Yeah, for sure. And uh, I, boy, I can't remember if I remember this on the show, if I mentioned this uh, before about Weird Al when he did on yeah. uh, on Dare to Be Stupid. Yes. That, um, which is very much a Devo esque. So, so Weird Al, obviously known for the parodies, but he also does sound alike stuff too. That right. Uh, and he's just such a genius with with everything he does. But <laughs> apparently, his uh, "Dare to Be Stupid" song 
which was, again, very Devo-esque, right. nailed the Devo aesthetic so much that Mark Mothersbaugh actually was angry about it and said it was like a more Devo-sounding song than even Devo. <laughs> that's wild. So I don't know if that's a true story, but I, I had heard that before. That's so, great. It's yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all right, on to my number four. I struggled with whether or not to include a live album or not because obviously it came out in 1980, but the music was from before then. So right. I kind of went back and forth. Ultimately, I like this album so much, and it's one that I own on vinyl. It's a double album, uh, and I play it a ton. And this is, uh, and I mentioned how this was kind of a mix for me of stuff that was current at the time that I knew and stuff that kind of came along after. Right. Uh, ACDC, obviously current. I knew I was aware they were getting tons of radio play back then. So this one's kind of a mix because some of these um, songs, this is uh, the one I went with was Supertramp, uh, Paris, uh, which is from, from obviously the concert in Paris there. And uh, Supertramp's one of those bands that, I think I always, I'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, I like Logical Song or whatever. They, along with Steely Dan, are two that I've really come to appreciate due to collecting vinyl. When sure. you can, you know, purchase that whole album, listen to it all the way through. And, um, yeah, so Super Tramp on there. So on Paris, live versions, which are good versions, There, there's, I like those bands that can kind of, cue close to the album recording but still you're you know it's it's live they, they there's a little wrinkle here or there there's a flourish here or there extended pieces things like that this album does a great job with that the the songs are super recognizable as what they are but they also have a nice live feel to them with the crowd participation things like that so uh standouts on on paris for me from super tramp is um well, let's start with school. That was one I gave you as one of my homework assignments. Did you check that out? I did check that out. Um, and it was amazing to hear this because I honestly, until you had said that to me, I can know, I know that Supertramp was a band. Um, <laughs> however, could not name one of their songs to save my life. So that, that one in particular was a wild track. It was all three, all three of your choices that you gave me were wild. Um, that one in particular just the harmonica, the spacey vibe, the subtle keyboards, you know, the, the kind of the prog rockish lead singer just above it. Um, and I, and I, I mean, one of my first, uh, you know, assertions was like, this would be great music to get high to, and I, <laughs> I could probably see why, because you know, and then a musical wall of sound happened. So there, there was quite a bit of uh, pace changes in the song. Yes. And, I, and and the one thing that I that I noticed, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I was trying to identify if the voc the lyrics repeated themselves and it didn't really seem like they did. It, it, it every phase seemed like it was a, a new a new chorus of music progressing forward. So I don't recall if there was a full repetition, but every time the music would take a, a shift in turn, there would be kind of a new lyric back into it. Yeah, and there's not even really a chorus structure to it. Right. Either. It's yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a very interesting song composition wise. And uh it's off a great album. Actually Terrace Cassidy, the uh, head uh, head honcho of the the Freebooters Network, the podcast network that we're on. Uh, Crime of the Century is one of his favorite albums, um, and it's uh, it's got a ton of other good stuff on it. But um, yeah, School's kind of an interesting song, and the and the live version on Paris is is good as well. But it's yeah, it, you mentioned the kind of the tempo changes and all yeah. kinds of different stuff. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a neat one. I thought you might like that one. Um, some of the other ones on there, Logical Song, most people know that one. Um, 
Uh, Bloody Well Right, another um, uh, one that got some radio play. Dreamer, most people know Dreamer. Take the Long Way Home. Uh, and then Breakfast in America is on there. That album itself, which um, was from a few years earlier, uh, is one of my all-time favorite albums, period. Um, that's It's just a great album. There's tons of stuff through there. So ultimately, there's so much on here that I like, and it's an album that I listen to again and again. So I, I felt like it had to make my list. So, right. yeah. So, uh, all right, we'll move on to number three on Brad's list. Number three, another debut on my list, uh, and really my first exposure to the band, hence their debut, uh, was U2's Boy. Um, And that, it's funny, because that one was another one that I don't necessarily think I would have heard on the radio per se, because they couldn't, hadn't really broken yet, I don't think. I mean, they were played on some stations, but based on what I had access to or what we were listening to on the radio in Maine, I don't recall ever hearing songs from that era back in the day about them i think in all honesty where i heard it it could again going back to my cousins probably had it or uh the kashubes tuli kashubes older brother oh, Alan, okay. um i think had this and it was one of those who is this band this is so unique and interesting it sounds so cool not really knowing any history behind the band that they were irish this was their debut album but i mean if you look at the track listing um it is just rife with songs that they're playing in their sets today. I will follow. I mean, I will follow Twilight, uh, Into the Heart, Out of Control, Stories for Boys, The Ocean, A Day Without Me. I mean, it's it, it has 11 or 12 tracks, and that's just on the original release. The expanded edition, I think they've included some remixes that came after the fact and maybe alternate takes. But, I mean, solid album, very unique, um, and kind of started my long-term love affair with them because they were just so strong in the 80s and every album that they released came and kind of enhanced their credibility as a band their uh, aptitude as artists and and bono as a lyricist it just was this was a building block for me so i mean u2 has always been you know, I've, I've, for unfortunately, you know, I hate to say it, I've only seen them once in my entire life, but it was probably the best show I could have seen them was in 93 at Foxborough for the outside uh, Zoo TV tour. Oh, um, nice. But, you know, as a avid collector of U2, I have uh, live recordings of them from this period all the way through till, you know, their last tour. So um, definitely a band that I have a, a, a deep fondness and appreciation of. More so in their earlier years, probably up until, you know, uh, mid to late 80s, um, before they were kind of start to transition a little bit away from their their harder rock edge and kind of doing more experimental, more not necessarily stadium style, but kind of reaching more of the masses versus some of their, you know, you you when I hear these songs, I think of small club environment. You're not thinking masses stadium. You're thinking, you know, four guys on stage, you know, just trying not to bump into each other playing these <laughs> solid tracks. But yeah, YouTube YouTube Boy was definitely a um amazing album that, you know, I've had more of a, a an appreciation for as I've gotten older, but also remember roughly around the time I first heard a couple of songs off this, I'm like, this is wild. And part of the reason why I've kind of gone on the independent music route for most of my life and not necessarily uh the um, harder rock route or metal route. You know, I kind of stayed in, in the, within that kind of lane for most of my music listening career. Yeah, and uh, it's this is one I had pegged that you would that you would pick. I, I felt <laughs> like this was this was on there, and I think I know um, 
one of the others was a definite. But uh, uh, yeah, I Will Follow, great track. That's one that I'm most familiar with off that. Uh, I don't own this one on vinyl um, or CD, so the deeper cuts are, are a little uh, uh, unknown to me. But uh, I definitely know I Will Follow, and I think there's a couple others that, that uh, I'm familiar with as well. But yeah, that's... Um, it's interesting that you mentioned, and, and I think a lot of bands are, are like that, where you kind of see them progress from that smaller, you know, club, intimate type of sound to the arena type of, and you see it evolve in their music. And um, I think the, I think you're right. I think these guys are a great example of that. And they've still obviously put out great, um, great records. What was the, shoot, what was the one maybe eight, ten years ago? Uh, I can't even remember what it was that came out, but I really enjoyed that album. It was one of their newer ones um, that had. Um, sorry, what? Was it Elevation? Was it that era? No, I can't. It may have even been later than that. I can't remember, but it. I I bought yeah. it, and it was when I was doing um, a pop culture column for the newspaper, and I I did some album reviews, and that was a pretty big release, and I I just remember really uh, really enjoying it. I can I can look real quick at their um because it's gonna bug me if I don't, <laughs> but um, <laughs> look at the, look at their discography and right. I'll, I'll know what it is. But um yeah, they're just one of those that I. I always like, but for whatever reason, their earlier stuff. And we talked uh, when we did the overview of '80s. Uh, no line on on the horizon. That was mm-hmm. yes, that that was a decent album. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So we talked in in the overview about how Joshua Tree is one of the very first you know cassettes I ever remember purchasing with my own money. Sure. And so that you know, and and War is a phenomenal yep. album. That's one of my favorites. So. Yeah, it's just they've they've had an interesting progression, but I still really enjoy what they do. It's just not the same as what they used to do. Right, right. You know, and that that's you know bands evolve and stuff, and you know we kind of had the opposite spectrum talking about ACDC, who've sure. been the same thing forever. So uh, <laughs> yeah, so no, that's a good pick. That's and I, and that was when I I was like, yeah, Brad's Brad's the <laughs> boy on there. I figured that was that was gonna happen. Um, all right, um, moving on to mine number three, which is. Uh, definitely a mainstream one. Definitely one I was listening to at the time, and an artist that I've always really loved, and I still do love a lot. And that's uh, Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band, "Against the Wind." Now, uh, Seger's interesting because he's—I'm uh, trying to find my notes on that one. There it is. So he's a guy that I think, like Springsteen, gets all the credit in the world for being a storyteller and creating these worlds and these, um, you know, everyday vignettes within his songs. Uh, I don't think Seeger gets enough credit for his songwriting and his lyrical writing. Cause he's, he's very strong with those same things, but he just, for whatever reason is always second fiddle to, to Springsteen in that regard. Uh, and, and Springsteen had a great record that came out that year, the river. Um, but, um, Right. Yeah, I don't know. I just feel like I feel like Seeger doesn't get the credit he deserves, and that Against the Wind album has some fantastic songs, and it, it's got some it's got some mediocre, forgettable ones, but it has three of my absolute favorite songs of his on that album, and that's uh, You'll Accompany Me, which is a great song. I play that one around here a lot. That's one of my wife's favorite songs. Uh, Against the Wind, uh, which is a super, it's just a it's a great song. And Fire Lake, which is not just my favorite Seeger song, that's one of my favorite songs, period. Um, and, and again, a very, it, it just, 
it tells a story and sets a tone and, and there's a mood to it. And I just think he does a really good job with that. And I think uh, it's unfortunate that he doesn't get the credit he deserves because I think I think Bob Seger is a like one of our, our best American songwriters and storytellers. And I don't think he gets enough credit for that. Right. So and that's probably one I'm sure, you know, you know, against the wind and stuff like that. Yeah. Those are ones that are on, you know, earmont commercials. and Yes. <laughs> Yeah, so it's a bit of a mainstream pick for me. Uh, my other one's not so much. My last two, not so much. But uh, <laughs> uh, so let's see, where are we at? We're on, are we on your number two? Number two. Um, talking Heads Remain in Light. Uh, this you know, was something for me that, you know, I, again, kind of like Devo, I had minimal exposure to, but as soon as I heard Once in a Lifetime, which is my anthemic, because they're not an anthem band, but to me, the personal uh, connection that I have to Once in a Lifetime, because it's it's gone through so many different uh, incarnation phases as a song by while talking while talking heads played it, but it, in addition to what uh, David Byrne has done with it over the years and and incorporating different rhythms and instrumentation to it, um, uh, my first exposure to what I would consider kind of new wave, you know, domestic new wave music. You know, kind of what you know, art indie, art house quirky stuff. Less, less you know, robotic than um, Devo, but kind of almost in that same. Like they, they, you know, a couple of their songs you could you know argue there's some very similarities in the keyboard choices that they've used and whatnot. But you know, this was um, a definitely an early cassette of mine, um, and I was intrigued by the album cover because it has the four band members' faces obscured. Uh, to a degree, which is you know very similar to a lot of their other things that they've done in in their videos later on in some of their other albums of just odd artistic approaches the way they present their their artwork to the to the listener. But um, yeah, this one was kind of, kind of a no brainer. There was a couple other toss ups in there, which you know I think I will briefly mention you know at the end of some of our honorable mentions. But th- this was one of my early albums on cassette that I definitely would continue and, you know, buy subsequent albums by them and just kind of be impressed with, you know, David Byrne's vocal ability and just the overall kind of simple yet complex way they presented music in a very tasteful and kind of artistic way, which was something, you know, I was unaccustomed to, you know, because if you look at what else is on the list compared that I've mentioned, um, you know, comparing you to you too, polar opposites in different in sure. different leagues altogether. But um, you know, just a uh, a unique approach to music presentation. And like I said, you know, once in a lifetime is the perfect track for me. It doesn't matter if it's on the 1980 album or if David Byrne is doing it live um, uh, on on Oprah. I mean, it's it's he the way he the, the way the song just hits me. There's something unique about it. And um, and there aren't a ton of tracks that I can say that I have such an, a, an emotional connection to, but it's the beat, the rhythm, the bass, everything is it's like the perfect track. And it has stayed with me since since then till today. And I always get excited when I hear it anywhere, if it's in a commercial on TV, if I in a movie. I mean, it's it's one of those things that just you takes you reels you right back to the beginning of when you first heard it and and how powerful music is to um the connections we build to it and how profound it is so yeah it's it's a great album i'm just looking through some of the tracks i know uh you, you one of your other homework ones that you'd sent me was houses in motion yes. which 
it was it was so funny. I'm so glad that that was the one you picked because I had heard it before and really liked it, but there would have been no way I could have pinpointed it. Even if I said to you, what's that talking head song? And it's got this and this, and you would have been like, that's like a hundred talking heads. Right, exactly. Because it is... (laughs) It is 100% talking heads. Like you would yeah. not mistake it for anyone else right. when you hear it, mm-hmm. but it's but it still stands out. And I really enjoyed that one. That one's definitely going on rotation for me. This is not uh, an album I own. I love Once in a Lifetime. It, that is uh, just a that's an amazing song. Yeah. Uh, talking heads vinyl is a little tough to come by unless you're going to spend a little bit, even for uh, even for used. So right. They're a band that I don't have. I only have one or two of their albums, and it's because whenever I see them, they're a little pricey. And uh, for whatever reason, I don't know, there are, there are a handful of bands that are like that where people yeah. probably just don't part with those albums. That, that's I, I would assume, you know, and, and the old stuff, you know, commands, um, you know, a, a good dollar today. But And the nice thing is, you know, a lot of the purists, you know, will have – gone and maybe picked up the re-release but you know the real purist wants the original release in its original format with the original artwork because they usually expand upon liner notes sleeve notes that sort of thing so you know i I would think good condition older ones would probably be you know like you said more difficult to find and if available probably at a higher price tag than the than the latter editions that were released yeah it's funny you mentioned the um the cover art as well because as i was uh i watched it last night on uh, watched and listened on youtube mm-hmm. uh, what i did was the the songs that brad gave me to listen to i i went through them once last night and then again a couple times today just so i could kind of get a feel for them and uh, as i'm as i'm watching uh, uh you know on youtube and listening it's just one of those static shots of the album artwork and looking at it on the TV, it occurred to me that, that it almost looks like like an early version of like Microsoft Paint was used to, <laughs> because it's, very, it's super pixelated. It's really and, pixelated and, and obscure just enough so you can kind of see who each band member is. But yeah, you know, it's very primitive. But uh, you know, for that time. But at the same point, you know, that they're I'm sure their art technology. Yeah, you know, and they're all art students, I believe. You know, I think it was RISD is where most of them met back in the day in in Rhode Island. Um, that they their music matched their pre their presentation of the art that was that the music was housed in. And I think that's indicative of if you look at any of their albums, even their live Stop Making Sense, there's, you know, David Byrne in the big suit. So <laughs> right. they, they really have, you know, kept neat artistic themes in their music, but also in the presentation of it. And I'm and I'm, I'm such a big, you know, as a musical avid music collector, I'm hugely affected by pieces of music that have equally, you know, compelling piece, artwork that it's housed in. I mean, I, you know, I'm constantly harping on modern day artists that I have, you know, connections through to social media that are maybe not releasing albums as regularly anymore, you know, because the marketplace, they may not have a record deal or may just may not have the same clout that they used to. But, you know, I always push artists, you know, even if you have to go for with a bare bones digipack album release with minimal artwork release it with the artwork something that you know has meaning to them something that's either connected to the music itself that's on the album or something that's connected to them personally so i'm constantly you know encouraging artists who may not view it as you know cost efficient in 2020 to release anything other than like a digital album but i'm i i'm super huge on the presentation and you know what you see inside the album is to me is as equally important as what you hear on the album 
I'm 100% with you, and I think that's why, like, I enjoy the sound of vinyl, and and I know it sounds pretentious to say, oh, it's a warmer sound. I do notice a sound difference, but I love the tactile, you know, just looking at liner notes, you know, yeah. the, the, the gatefold albums that open up and have pictures in them. Those are great. When I throw a record on the turntable, I will take it and I'll sit down with it. Maybe it's got the lyric sheet. Maybe it's got pictures. You know, that that is a huge part, and that's a part that's unfortunately been lost in the digital yeah. age. Is yeah. that, that? And I think that's as as much a connection to to the music itself as as I, anything. I mean, it's that complete learning tools. I mean, you like you said, you you know, we spent a large part of our lives. You know, and I'm sure you've been guilty of this as well. It doesn't matter which time or era we're in where we're singing a song and we think we've got the lyrics nailed down <laughs> tight. And then we read the lyrics and we're like, we were not even close on that. So, yeah, you know, it was a neat little, um, you know, extra to be able to see the lyrics inside, uh, you know, the, the like the, if it's a gatefold vinyl album or just on the liner notes on the inside. You learn so much by, you know, how how important the lyricist is or the lead writer uh, is on a track when you read the actual song lyrics and you get a sense of just, you know, um, you know, intelligence, you know, the intelligence of a band can often be dictated by the lyrics that they write and how they present it. You know, obviously anyone can pull off a song, but, you know, and, um, you know, the lyrics themselves basically are super important to the you know, the composition itself. So, and, and, and just having the artwork and be able to see that and be able to associate it and the, the, the physical holding portion of it, like you said, holding the, the album, opening it up, pulling it out, reading the, um, the, you know, uh, the, the track listings, you know, getting associated with, you know, listing the, knowing the song as related by the lyrics is, is just something phenomenal. And I, it is definitely a part of our, um, a dying part of our, our modern music cultures because everything is digitized now with mp3 or flack and it's quick to download it in seconds versus putting the vinyl on getting the stylus on and then just you know sitting back and zoning out and listening to something that has you know deep meaning to it's it's a uh, you know and that's why we're doing the show is to kind of remind people the importance of uh the old ways if you will you know the uh, the way of albums were pres- presented to us um when we we're growing up yeah and knowing the band members too that's always been something that i that i enjoy is knowing who's doing what who's playing what agreed nice yeah great great choice that's a that's a good i'll have to try and track that one down again because i really should have that on vinyl so uh all right moving to my number two this is a bit of an interesting one for me because this is a band that i've really come to appreciate as an adult and i i was fortunate to see them i think i saw them three times in uh in concert of my of my top five, I've seen all of them in concert except Supertramp. I, I don't know if they even still do anything. Uh, but I, I saw Seeger <laughs> in Knoxville nice. uh, when I was going to uh, school in Tennessee. I saw Rush three times. I've seen ACDC three or four times. And then my number one slot I was able to see a few times too. But uh, awesome. So my, my number two, uh, as I mentioned, Rush, Permanent Waves. And the interesting thing about this album is it has a ton of their radio hits. Um <clears throat> Spirit of Radio and Free Will, well, two, two of their radio hits, uh, but Free Will and Spirit of Radio are two that are pretty well known, but I, the deeper cuts for me are where the strength of this album really lies. Uh, Entree New, Natural Science, which has uh, three different parts to it, and the one I gave you for homework, which is Jacob's Ladder, and um, it's just, uh, 
it's a song that kind of builds and it's got like a real atmosphere to it. And uh, I was very fortunate that I saw their final tour, their 40th anniversary tour, which was the end uh, for them. Um, you know, I don't know if the time if they knew Neil Peart uh, was dying of cancer or not. Unfortunately, he did pass away fairly recently, but um, that was the, they knew that was their last tour. That was my older son's first concert. We, he and I have been to a lot of concerts together but that was the first one that was five or six years ago and it rush is known as a phenomenal live band and i told him after that show i said i have good news and bad news the and it's both the same statement that might be the best concert you'll ever see you know Mm -hmm. unfortunately it was his very first one but jacob's ladder on that tour and they had not done jacob's ladder in concert since the 80s so i i was really glad because that's one of my favorites of theirs. So I had you check that one out. What did yeah. you make of that one? I fantastic. I mean, it's you know, I my knowledge of Rush. I know the band. I know the members. I can recognize it as soon as I hear it. As soon as you hear um, his voice, um, but it's uh, but for this one in particular, you know, I definitely you know, there's a the progression as you said, you know, and and correct me again. I definitely felt. There's progressive rock, anthem-style rock. The music itself, the presentation of it, very technical. Uh, I felt, you know, when I'm listening to the lyrics of it, you know, Getty Lee's, there's definitely more of a cerebral edge to what he sings about. And then there are instrumental jams that dominated, like, three-quarters of the track. Um, you know, and again, average songs are not seven minutes and 30, <laughs> right. 30 seconds, but that's, that's typical for the style of music that they produce. Not necessarily... You know what we would consider jam bands do that because they just will hit that groove and then kind of drift off into the atmosphere. But that's actually you know a seven minute and thirty second song for them, fairly typical to kind of hit you. But if they're not jamming. That is part of their song. That's the, the the instrumental parts, the segue points between the beginning and the end are just them. That's part of the integral to the track. They're not necessarily going off into space um, all that often. But this one I thought was good, and and not to be compared with uh, much later uh, Huey Lewis and the News is Jacob Ladder, which was nowhere <laughs> in the same arena. Yeah, this one was definitely a cool track, you know, and I enjoyed, um, you know, exposure to this because, like I said, a, a full awareness of the band, the members, and being able to pick their songs out, you know, within a few seconds of hearing it, but not know, knowing individual songs per se. This was a great choice. Yeah, and uh, you mentioned the the lyrics. Uh, Neil Peart was their main lyricist as well, and uh, an avid reader, and and looked into a lot of different things, existentialism, and and things like that. So you see him deal with a lot of different things within uh, his songwriting. But yeah, that's that's a track that I just I, I really love, and I was really thankful to be able to see them do it live because it was pretty phenomenal. Um, and again, I I, I like the radio hits. Um, you know, most people are probably familiar with Tom Sawyer. Yeah. Um, you know, but um, and then the two that I mentioned off this album, Free Will and Spirit of Radio, are pretty well known. But the like I said, the deeper cuts are where I really enjoy this album, and it's one that um, Rush has become one of my favorite bands. And this is a really, really strong effort from them because it has that nice mix of the the radio friendly but still very solid songs. Right. Um, Free Will lyrically is a great. Yeah. It's got that great line. You know, if you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. Which is a, that's just a great line, yeah. um, but then again, those those deeper cuts are are really really good, and I, Entree New is a great song, um, as is Natural Science. So yeah, just a just a really strong effort overall from Rush, and one of my favorite bands, and 
an album that I listen to front to back when I when I listen to it. So that to me is always the strength of an album. Do you want to skip a track? And and this is definitely one where it's like, no, I'm going to let that play through. So right, uh, yeah. So all right, awesome. we've reached your number one pick. What uh, what do you got for number one? I, I think you, I think you know what number one is. I think it's pretty obvious. <laughs> Um, it, it's probably my it is my most favorite band on the planet uh, to this day. You know, I may not know a, every exact lyric because I've created lyrics for myself over time to fit <laughs> what I'm thinking. But it's definitely the police's Zenyatta Mandata is my number one pick for 1980. This w- w- was an album that I definitely had on vinyl, um, influenced by to get it. Obviously, my, I think my cousins uh, had. Um, Outlandos D'Amour and Regatta de Blanc, which were the, the previous two albums, you know, and the police were very strong in the early 80s up until their initial demise in 83-84. They were releasing an album almost every year. So they had um, Outlandos came out on, I think, 78, uh, Regatta de Blanc, 79, and then Zenyata Mundata, which was in 1980. And I think... Um, I think I have to look it out again. I think they got two Grammys for this. One was for Dance, Don't Stand So Close to Me, and then I think the other one was for their instrumental. Um, uh, and I'm just Two instrumentals. There's two yeah, ones. Those, those are two, those those two that you gave me. Those are I gave you. And then they had Regatta de Blanc on, this, on the Regatta de Blanc album, which also got a Grammy for an, a rock instrumental. And that's just... You know, very strange for a band that was kind of coming out of the, you know, the new wave scene, the punk scene, getting, finding their feet into the rock world uh, with each album as they were progressing, you know, to get Grammy Awards for, you know, obvious, obvious singles on the album, but then to get, you know, rock instrumentals uh, Grammy Awards speaks volumes. And those not and those weren't, I don't believe, written by Sting. I think Stuart Copeland wrote one of them on one of the albums, and then Annie Summers wrote the other one. So that says a lot about the instrumental abilities of a band like that. But I mean, looking at, look at the track listing. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, they've got don't stand so close to me, opens it up driven to tears when the world is running down. I mean, every song I can hum it for the most part. I can sing most of the lyrics, I'm sure. Um, and you know, man in the suitcase, man in a suitcase, uh, shadows in the rain. All, a lot of these songs sting, um, you know, in his solo career has mixed into his, uh, his, his, uh, song lineups going out on tour. Um, and you know, and if you look at, you know, his bring on the night in 85, I mean, he was doing, you know, shadows in the rain, um, voices and voices inside my head when the world is running down. He does canary in a coal mine fairly regularly too. Doesn't he? Right. And then, and then the, the mix of, um, when the world is running down, you make the best of what's still around merges into uh, bring on the night it's very similar structure of the songs and it's very it was easy for the, him and them as the police but also when he's doing it you know a solo to go from one song right into the other with no issue because it's very the 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 music uh the backing music is very similar so super super solid album you know just reaffirmed my affinity uh, early on of just how much i love this i love this band um and just you know and you know and kind of you're just having done a little more research on it just the amount of music that they quality music that they were putting out as a three-piece obviously um was quite remarkable for such you know to release an album almost every year is almost unheard of and that's pretty much what they did and you know after after Zenyatta Madonna the next album that came out was Ghost of the Machine 82 and then Secret of Safety so they were writing in real time like most bands do but they were writing producing recording and then releasing um to a 
it's it's I don't know if there's any other band out there that has released that amount of albums in that short period of time and then disappeared off the face of the earth for 30 years. I mean, it, that doesn't always <laughs> happen that often. But, um, you know, Sting being consummate Sting. I mean, if you listen to the lyrics, um, again, I'm very big on s- things that are cerebral. Um, you know, he's a very intelligent. Uh, all three of them, intelligent writers, intelligent minds, very creative. You know, their their interworkings as a, a three piece unit is, you know, second to none in my book as a, as a three piece. Um, although you might argue Rush uh, rivals them, <laughs> which is fine. It. But it, but an interesting interesting that we have two bands that are such yeah. musically like they they just both of those bands do so much with three members. It's crazy. Yes. Right. And and to be able to work in and both bands have worked in extensive keyboard work as well, which is even more wild. You know, uh, in while the police went from the new wavy rock punk thing and rush kind of the prog rock ish rock music and just really, you know, robust sound. It's like all three of them, you know, in each band member contributes something so special to the music. And when we get the final product, the song, it just is, it's mind blowing to be thrilled that this is not just music, but this is actually literally pieces of artwork that we're hearing um, orally, so, you know, and, and do, 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 da, 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 you know, I just, you know, I have so many, you know, positive connections and relation, relationships of girls I had crushes on very early <laughs> on when I was younger, and, like, this song kind of m- matches her, but maybe not, so, yeah, it's just feel-good stuff, and it was, um, you know, and I was, you know, always thrilled when they released an album, you know, you know, we didn't have a lot of access to mediums to tell us when stuff was coming out back in the day so i would pick maybe a rolling stone or something back along to see new releases you know at our favorite place mr paperback was uh, one of our good localized bookstores that did give us at least some outlet to learn about stuff that's coming down the pike release wise if we weren't hearing it on the radio um or seeing them you know as a young as young whippersnappers as we were having a parents take us but yeah i was able to get to see them unfortunately got to see them um, way later, you know, it was when the reunion tour, the 2007 or 2006, 2007, early 2009. So I never got to see them uh, on their initial routes coming through. And they did play places as close as uh, the Portland Civic Center back in the day. And I think there may have been one of their tours that they came as high as Augusta. But, oh, wow. um, so but, you know, me, you know, in the early 80s, uh, not, you know, all my cousins were living in the metropolitan areas, New York and whatnot. So they had clear and, and direct access to, you know, updated music as well as tours and bands and going to shows with permissions from parents. There's me, Brad, Central Maine, as were you. Not as much access to, you know, knowing what's coming out when and then getting to those shows was difficult because we had we didn't have too many major concert venues back in the day and we still really don't. Um, but those have evolved over the years to, you know, you know, encompassing, um, better live shows, but, you know, getting to Augusta wouldn't have been difficult, but, you know, getting to Portland, you know, as a, you know, eight or nine year old would have been a little more of a different story for my parents to kind of justify taking me to a concert of a band that they don't probably not know much about because they were more into, um, their music and vinyl at the time. And then there's me kind of branching off from what the folks were listening to. So, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, uh, just looking at the tracks, there's obviously the the ones that you know are well known. Don't stand so close to me and do 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 da da da. But uh, yeah, some really good ones. This is one that I 
I have this on vinyl, but the two that you gave me for assignments are not. Uh, maybe I. It might be because they're instrumentals. I didn't mm-hmm. necessarily remember them, but uh, other way of right. stopping. Yeah. Uh, which is really solid. Just a really like musically very interesting. Like to. Yeah to just kind of zone in on all the different things that are going on in it. And um, behind my camel, I actually went down a little bit of a rabbit hole with this one. Um, The word that comes to mind for me for that song is ominous. It has a little bit of a, almost like a a little bit of a a sinister edge to it, which, um, which I really liked. But the funny thing is I looked into it and uh, apparently Andy Summers did this. This was kind of his pet project so much so that Sting refused to play on it. And uh, and I think that's the one uh, I'm going to click on it here, but I think that's the one that won a Grammy. It did. It, it yes. won um, uh, in 82, which is weird. Awarded mm-hmm. in 82, but for accomplishments in late 80 or 81. That's weird right. for best rock instrumental performance. Um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, Sting, Sting said in a, a Revolver interview in 2000, I hated that song so much. One day when I was in the studio, I found the tape lying on the table. So I took it around the back of the studio and buried it in the garden. <laughs> Again, that is just exactly how Sting's dynamic was with that band. And it's kind of unfortunate, you know, and that's, you know, of all the documentaries that I've seen on the police, you know, that was kind of the prevailing wind with him. I am the front man. This is my band. Uh, despite the fact, you know, he could have pulled off the police, but it wouldn't have been the same sound whatsoever without Stuart Copeland and Andy Summers as the, you know, as the as the trio completing the trio but yeah that that doesn't surprise me at what at all because you know to tie that in um the the 86 remix of don't stand so close to me which in my personal opinion is better than the original i know i get a lot of flack for that because it's the modernized updated version but you know both stewart uh and sting were going in the studio and they were basically recording different versions of the same song to try to update it. Sting would not like what Stuart was doing and Stuart would not like what Sting is doing. So they would go back and forth. So that was another song that's included here that would have a later impact on their, their kind of brotherly love hate relationship, Stuart and Sting enough to re-release a track, remix it, and then not have it be to either their liking until what, you know, again, ultimately what they arrived at is phenomenal. The video is fantastic. It, you know, it's very nostalgic. It, you know, couples in so much of the band's history, you know, uh, from every album. Um, and it's just a unique take on it. So I was happy that, you know, that song of all of them, um, got remixed but you know the original version live on a few of the live recordings that i have from the police from that period you know sting has got like his stand-up bass but i think it's an electric stand-up bass and it it's just a heavy bass bass rattling sound um that opens that song and that's you know it's it's no surprise to me why they um you know got accolades for that song uh on the album because it's just a solid opening track and and really well placed to open the album yeah yeah for sure yeah that's a that's a really strong and again that was when i knew i was like if it if it wasn't your number one i would have been surprised but uh uh, but i yeah i know you're such a a fan of uh them and of sting yeah i kind of had that one pegged so but (laughs) but certainly certainly a phenomenal uh phenomenal album uh that brings us to our number one or sorry my number one uh which is so this is one that falls into the appreciation later wish i had known about it then right uh black sabbath heaven and hell Mm. um i'm a huge black sabbath fan and i'm a huge ronnie james dio fan 
and this was Sabbath's first album with Dio at the lead vocals. This was after Ozzy Osbourne had been re- removed from the band. His drug use and drinking was so much so that he was not functional. And uh, Tony Iommi, Geezer Butler, Bill Ward, the other founding members of Sabbath, uh, had to let him go. And so they, they brought in Ronnie James Dio, who had been in a band called Rainbow, which was the first band that uh, Richie Blackmore formed after leaving Deep Purple. Um, the, they did three albums with Dio, the, uh, Rainbow did, and uh, those are phenomenal albums. I love those. Those are all from the 70s. But Heaven and Hell is the first one with Sabbath, with Dio at the helm, and it immediately shows you the range that the, they were capable of musically when you had a different lyri- uh, you know, lyrical style Ozzy, I love Ozzy. I love the albums with Ozzy, but as an actual singer, he can't touch Dio. Dio is is <laughs> arguably the best heavy metal vocalist of all time. You know, a lot of people will say um, Rob Halford from Judas Priest is up there, and um, sure. you know um, Bruce Dickinson from Iron Maiden. But Ronnie James Dio's voice is is just simply amazing. And I had you check out the title track. Yeah. So I was curious what you thought of that because that is definitely not in your wheelhouse. Definitely not in my wheelhouse. Um, recognized it for being a Black Sabbath song. There's no question about that. You know, um, the just the heaviness of it. You good lyrics. Um, I felt the the. I felt like I was being sung at, not sung to. It is definitely that style of music. Definitely has what I consider when the lead singer is on a pulpit and you know, and I've seen that you've seen this in in priest videos, very much so leaning out over the crowd, the crowd raising their hand and headbanging. It's definitely yeah. a, a headbanging tune. There's that rhythm, and you can see where it where it picks up, and it's just it's super hard hitting. I can see why you like it. It, it. it speaks volumes to your your quality taste in music from that era, and obviously what you've been uh, been exposed to over the years. Why that would definitely be you know a number one song pick for you for me, but also an album as well. I mean, there's there's no question. But yeah, that was solid. I enjoyed that. I when I was doing the research and listening to it, that was the first one. Obviously, I I jumped into. I'm like, uh, I knew exactly. I knew Sabbath was going to appear based on the based on what was released. <laughs> Did not know you know what track was going to come at me, but yeah, that was definitely a good choice, and I I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it's got it's got such a the baseline is really the backbone of that song, yes. and it's and it's it's really good, and it's one that builds. Um, I think it's got some of Dio's best um, vocal uh, performance in it, and it's just great. Heaven and Hell, the the title track is just an epic, and it's one that you know among metal fans is um, is very highly regarded. Uh, Children of the Sea is one of my favorites off that album. That was actually the first one they wrote together with Dio. Uh, Neon Nights, Die Young, Lonely is the Word, just a, a lot of great tracks on there and an album that I will listen to front to back, um, you know, at any given moment. I just really, really enjoy it. So that was that was my number one. Um, I forget to do uh, a couple of honorable mentions. We're kind of going along with this one, but um, yeah. just do a couple honorable mentions and we'll, then I'll just kind of go through and look at some of the other things that were released and we can just pop in on anything that, that strikes our fancy. But um, other ones that were close to making the cut were um so i mentioned ozzy being removed from sabbath 1980 saw the release of his first solo album blizzard of oz that's a great album that one very nearly made my top five uh it's got i don't know and crazy train Mm -hmm. which are you know obviously two well-known ones crazy train the epic uh 
guitar riff that opens that everybody knows. Mr. Crowley's on there, another one that gets some good radio play and is a good song. Uh, it also has the controversial one, Suicide Solution, which um, he, Ozzy was actually sued by parents who claimed That's that right. his his song had driven their son to suicide. Um, it's it's not a pro-suicide song. It's actually about killing yourself through drugs and drinking slowly. It's it's actually an anti-drinking uh, and drugs song if yeah. you really pay attention to it. Um, overall, uh, there's a couple tracks that are just not quite as strong as the heavy hitters on there. So ultimately, that kept it off my list. And then, uh, what else was I going to mention? Because there was a couple others that, um, Gaucho, Steely Dan, I'm a huge Steely Dan fan, but Gaucho isn't one of their stronger albums. Uh, it's got Hey 19 on it, which is, uh, which is obviously a really good song. Uh, Babylon Sisters is one I really like. The rest of them, very, very Steely Dan-esque, but not a lot of standouts on there. Uh, Ace of Spades, Motorhead album that year. Um, Motorheads, either you love Motorhead or you, or you don't. There's, there's See, no. Yeah, I expected that on your list for some reason, but I'm was pleasantly, pleasantly surprised that it wasn't on your, on your primary. Yeah, Ace of Spades, I love that song, and there's a couple other yeah. songs that on the album that are good, but, but I mean, even more so than ACDC, Motorhead is very formulaic. A lot of their stuff sounds yeah. the same, and yeah. uh, you know, so Ace of Spades is great, but just overall as an album, not strong enough to, to crack my uh, list. And then the other one was another live one, Yes, uh, Yes Shows. Um, that's got some great tracks. I'm a huge Yes fan. Uh, that's a really good album, but it's among the, their songs that I like. There's not as many of them on the album enough for me to um to have it crack the top ten. But those sure. those are my honorable mentions. So um what uh, what did you have for some? I had and it's funny because some of mine honorable mentions I got into r- around the same time, but not really buying albums like U- UB40 signing off. I was aware of the band. Um, I think I had heard probably on the radio, probably um, on Colby radio station, probably UB40 track. Love UB40. You know, obviously nowadays they're into two different incarnations uh, with band, uh, the two band brothers uh, feuding. Um, Closer by Joy Division was something I got into after the fact. I actually got into Joy Division later after I was into New Order, after, after the demise of Joy Division, the incarnation of New Order. San Denise of the Clash, which, which was good. Didn't really listen to the Clash that much um, early on, but, you know, later in life, looking back and seeing their importance. Um, bands I was surprised to see on there, but didn't realize at the time, you know, XTC's Black Sea, um, was, uh, an early release for them. Bauhaus in the flat field, 17 seconds, The Cure. Um, and then bands that I only got really accustomed to when I had my, uh, Sirius XM first wave account, uh, Ultravox, uh, the Jim Carroll band, um, and then, um, an uh, absolute favorite of mine, and then this was another early cassette that I owned, was uh, Echo and the Bunnymen's Crocodiles. So there were definitely some other good hitters on the list. Um, and as you can see from my primary list, in addition to what the honorable mentions honorable mentions are, um, are definitely in that what we would consider alternative music. So I was I was alternative at heart super early on and didn't even know it based on <laughs> what my musical tastes were. And and it's funny because you know a lot of my exposure came you know, um, independent of what I had access to. And I think that's kind of neat that, you know, finding out about music, I think that's, it holds true with any, any time of life when you, um, find a piece of music and then you want to research it as much as possible. Now we have 
every available research you know method at our fingertips to identify a song or an album or a band that we like versus when we were younger we were lucky to um you know know what the name of the band was and what we heard on the radio and will we ever hear it again because you know radio play there's no guarantee you're going to hear that song necessarily at the exact same time every day so we were you know very fortunate to um you know like i said have the stereo system uh, my old stereo system and then um you know going to bed at night being able to listen to my little sony walkman the radio stations and having access and obviously playing the with my cassettes the few cassettes that i did have back in the day um you know and, and are long since gone from my history but the bands still remain and you know i'm very very happy that um some of these bands were kind of solidifying what my opinion was of them at the time to what they've be actually grown into as as uh, as full-fledged artists sure sure uh all right i'm gonna just real quick kind of go through some of the other significant uh ones that came out that year i noticed there were a bunch of um a bunch of self-titled stuff came out that year in january looking at just uh like the romantics and the pretenders both had self-titled albums yeah. come out uh that pretenders album's really really solid too uh love stinks by jay giles band that's that's right. one that, tons of radio play there um <laughs> Yeah, let's see. Moving into the Ramones, end of the century came out. Yep. There's Boys Don't Cry. You mentioned that one. Yep. Um, Sugar Hill Gang, which obviously very significant in uh, starting to break hip hop and rap into into mainstream. Uh, Brian Adams, self-titled. Uh, Hearts. I'm, I'm a big Heart fan. Uh, Baby Lestrange is on there. Overall, not a super strong album for me, but I, I like Heart a lot. But um, yeah, uh, Warren Zevon's Bad Luck Streak in Dancing School. Uh, you get Elvis Costello. Yeah. Um, let's see who else we got. Um, Uriah Heep. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Iggy Pop, Soldier. A lot of good stuff in there. Uh, moving into March, we got uh, Psychedelic Furs with their self-titled album. Nice. They're one of those that my dad, uh, who has a, a huge vinyl collection, he liked Psychedelic Furs a lot. So I, um, I kind of picked up some of their stuff by osmosis and really do enjoy a lot of their stuff. Uh, Billy Joel's Glass Houses, Def Leppard, uh, On Through the Night, uh, Journey, Departure, let's see who else we got, Shaka Khan, um, <laughs> yeah. Van Halen's Women and Children First, that's yep. a really solid oh, one, yeah. Genesis, uh, Duke yep. came out that year, Loverboy's self-titled album, uh, Scorpion's Animal Magnetism as a Metal Guy, that's a, that's a really good album, let's see, we got uh, moving into April, Judas Priest, British Steel, and Iron Maiden's self-titled album came out on the same day. Those those are two that could have made my um, honorable mentions. Both really really strong albums. Maiden, I'm not as big a fan as those early albums with uh, Bruce Diani on um, or uh, sorry uh, Paul Diani on vocals, but uh, there are some there are some standouts on there. British Steel is a great album from Priest. Uh, that's a really good one. Uh, the Cure, 17 Seconds. Did they really release two? full albums or was that like eps or something that is a good question um yeah i, I wasn't familiar yeah, with that one. both of those actually are i wonder if it, one of them one of them is an ep album or like yeah, yeah. like six or seven tracks versus like the you know nine or ten yeah um also in april tommy two-tone obviously of uh jenny <laughs> that oh, yeah. <laughs> one hit wonder fame moving into may got uh, elton john 21 at 33 Right. There's Devo's Freedom of Choice, as yep. you mentioned. Um, Joan Jett, Bad Reputation. That's a really solid yeah, album. It's a huge album. Yeah. Uh, Peter Gabriel, Safe yeah. Self-Titled. I, that's, a, uh, that's a good one. Um, 
Let's see. Village people. Can't stop the music. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, Billy Squire. Fabulous Thunderbirds. A lot, a lot of Cheap Trick had an album come out that uh, in June. The Kinks, one for the road. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, Blue Oyster Cult, Cultosaurus Erectus. Uh, I'm, I, I like Blue Oyster Cult, but I like a lot of their earlier stuff. Um, uh, Rolling Stones, Emotional Rescue, Sammy yeah. Hagar, Bob Dylan, Jackson Brown, Holdout. That's a great album. Uh, Huey Lewis and the News, uh, their yeah. self-titled uh, first one. Uh, there's Joy Division, Closer. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, Chicago had uh, Chicago 14. Um, not sure what's on that one. Chicago named a bunch of theirs with some stuff where I can never remember what's on each album. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Eddie Money playing for keeps. Uh, Susie and the Banshees. Yeah. In there, Pat Benatar, Crimes of Passion. I am I am an unashamed Pat Benatar fan. I like Pat Benatar <laughs> a lot. Uh, the Cars, Panorama, that's a good one. Um, uh, let's see, B-52's Wild Planet, that's a really solid uh, B-52's album. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of good stuff in there. Um, let's see, moving into the, the fall here. Uh, John Cougar, Nothing Matters and What If It Did. Um, early stuff from him, he kind of found his rhythm, I think, a little bit after that. But um, I, do, I do enjoy his stuff. Oingo Boingo's self-titled yeah. album. Um uh, let's see. Who else we got? Herbie Hancock. There's uh, Joni Mitchell. All kinds of good stuff. Prince, Dirty Mind. Mm-hmm. Too. Man for Man, Thin Lizzy. A lot of, a lot of really in excesses. Um, uh, they're self-titled. Right. We got. Uh, let's see. I know it's boring for me to just read a list here, but <laughs> <laughs> people need to know, man. People need to done. know. We're almost done. <laughs> uh, Abba's Super Trooper. Um. Let's see, jazz singer Neil Diamond, not my yeah. tape, but I, that was a huge album. That's one I think my folks had. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, let's see, uh, Midnight Oil, Bird Noises. Mm. Yep, good stuff there. Blondie, Auto American. Um, yeah, I like Blondie a lot. Uh, and then finally into December, Queen, the Flash Gordon soundtrack. Oh yeah. I own that on vinyl. I um, own that on. I own. I've owned that in so many different incarnations. I'm now up to the limited edition <laughs> double CD version of it now. Not the single CD with expanded tracks. It's, this, it's the double CD that it has, like, it's got, you know, a few of the tracks, the uh, Flash and the Hero live, I think, Montreal or somewhere else, or the extra included bonus tracks on the second disc, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome. That's pretty much it, though, for, uh, for the releases. I, I think we kind of covered... Everything, and I know obviously listeners have their own tastes and everything, but hopefully it um, sparks you to either check out some of the things we've recommended or, or you know, go back and look through your old uh, stuff and, and have a listen because uh, you touched on it, and it's something I wholeheartedly agree with. Music really pins you to a very specific time and place in your life, and, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons that certain artists or songs or albums stay with us for so long is that there's that real connection to them. Right. All right, my friend, is there anything else uh, we want to talk about for the year in music 1980? I, I think we nailed 1980 shut, and I'm looking <laughs> forward to um, our future years of expanding upon albums that had impacts on us because we're definitely moving as, you know, as we progress through the 80s, we're definitely getting more in tune with, you know, our abilities to actually, you know, have exposure to MTV, which will influence our purchasing power and be able to hear more bands that are starting to show up on the radio, 
in addition to I started earning an allowance mowing the lawn, so I was able to start buying my own cassettes now and not have to wait until, you know, birthday or Christmas to get them. So it's definitely, a, um, you know, our progression from moving forward is only going to get more awesome. I, and I can't wait to see where we're going to go because I'm already knowing some of the albums and when they're releases, like, I cannot wait to go crazy and talk about these bands. So, yeah. Yeah, me too. We'll have to we we have to be we have to temper it though. We can't just rush through all the all the musical stuff. We'll we'll mix them in here and there. Let me be. Let me who I'm gonna be. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. next month we are reaching a milestone for a huge movie in our childhoods and and just in pop culture in general. It's the 40th anniversary of The Empire Strikes Back. So for next month, Brad and I are gonna watch it again for the hundredth time and. Uh, yep. We'll do a deep dive into that movie. So that's what you can look forward to next. And we've already discussed what else is coming down the road for us. So we got a lot of fun stuff coming up and we're going to keep uh, keep doing shows because I'm having a, a really fun time doing this show. So uh, we're going to keep plugging along. Brad, thank you as always. Thank you, sir. I enjoy being along for this awesome ride because I know every time we get in the car of memory lane, it gets more awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Very well said. All right. Thank you, Brad, as always. And thank you, listeners. We will be back in one month. This is Ego, the 80s Geek Out podcast, reminding you that when a problem comes along, you must whip it. to Ego, the 80s Geek Out podcast with Ian Clark and Brad Anderson. We are a part of the Freebooters Network. Check out thefreebootersnetwork.com to listen to all the awesome podcasts on the network. We also invite you to check out our sponsor, Geek Nation Tours, at geeknationtours.com and interact with our Facebook page, ask questions, offer comments, and critiques. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.